Hi. Oh, Hugh Mike, what's going on? How are you guys? Hey, uh, everybody do this. Stand up. Let's do this. Uh, find someone, two people over that you've never met. Shake their hand. Introduce yourself. All right, bring it back in. Everyone take a seat. Um, all right, everybody, my name is Johnny Artavanis. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about me. I worked at Hume Lake for about five years in Ponderosa with Sarah and with Mikey. Some great times, great memories. A number of my best friends still live up here on the mountain, and I'm just so thankful for my years that I spent here. I am now, as of three weeks ago, I moved to Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. I'm a pastor in Nashville area at a church called Stonebridge Bible Church. Uh, I have a wife, Katie. I met Katie up here while we were serving at Hume Lake together. Let me show us, Easton, we have the pictures of my, there's Katie and Lily. That's our new neighbor. Katie is 36, 37 weeks pregnant. So if she goes into labor, I'm walking off. Um, there's Lily. Come on. Are you kidding me? Um, that's Lily. She's, she's 20 months old. She's the best. All right. Thanks, Easton. So that's me. I uh, hate mayonnaise. And I live in Tennessee. I like the Lakers. Duh. Um, duh. And uh, I think that's pretty much it. Everybody tell me your name on the count of three. One, two, three. Did I hear a Mervin? What? Caden? Caden, what grade are you in? Freshman. Where are the freshmen at? Adorable. All right. Caden, stand up and give everyone a wave. I want everyone to know Caden. Oh, look at him. Look at him. Caden. Kaden, Kaden, you're my guy. Are you going to sit there the rest of the week? I develop a relationship with people where they sit. I just need you to be there. Because when I look at you, I'm looking for affirmation. So just give me a nod or if it's kind of bad, just, okay. All righty. Let me set the stage for you where we're going this week. You just watched it in the video. We're talking about really the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Babylon, before we open up the book of Daniel, I want to really just set kind of where we're going, the trajectory for our week. Life is full of crossroads moments, meaning that you come to a fork in the road where you must choose between two different paths to go down. To decide on which path you must take is literally to cut off one option. To decide in Latin is the word decidere, which means to cut off. So anytime you make a decision, it means you're saying no to one thing and yes to another thing. And life is full of such decisions. We come to these forks in the road when we are choosing to decide what college we'll attend or if we'll go to college at all. And if we do go to college, what field of study are we going to be in? Or will we be a dolphin trainer at SeaWorld or whatever it might be? Or who are you going to date? Jessica, or whatever it might be. Or if you're going to marry, when you'll get married, where you'll live, or if you're going to be a bachelor to the rapture. Now, there are additional forks in the road in your life. But whether you're 13 or a super senior in the house and you're 19, 
the most important fork in your life that you're gonna come to, the crossroads moment is really our theme for the week. And it's who are you going to live for? Sounds so simple, but have you ever truly asked yourself that question? Who are you going to be? Who are you going to live for? Are you going to live for God? Or are you going to live for the things of this world? And if you say you're going to live for God, the question that Daniel, the book of Daniel is gonna force us to ask is are you going to live for God when no one is watching? In the private hiddenness of your own room or in a community that doesn't seem to honor God and there you're going to be faced with immense pressure and hostility, are you going to stand firm when everyone else is bowing down? This is the thrust of the book of Daniel. Now, I want you to imagine a scene with me. 15-year-olds, raise your hand. Okay, you're 15. You're eating dinner with your family. You do this every single night. And you're enjoying the meal. You're having a conversation. And then all of a sudden, a plate falls off the counter. And then you notice the house begins to shake. And then you begin to wonder, what's going on? And you begin to think, is this an earthquake? And then you walk outside and you realize that the shifting and the shaking of your house is not due to the tectonic plates underneath you, but because of the massive, massive army, gilded and fine weaponry and armor that is marching on your city. Hundreds of thousands of men are approaching your city. It's not a minuscule militia. It's the most powerful nation of the most powerful empire on earth. At the time, as you were eating dinner, you had grown up in a context in a family that had loved God and pursued God. At a young age, you remember the truth that you had learned upon your mother's knee. They had instructed you in the name of Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name of God. You remember your father telling you, this is a God, you can know him, he's a personal God. He's revealed himself in his word. Your mother had begun to instruct you in the truth as she would go about her duties in the house and out in the workplace and in the field. But all of a sudden, your house door breaks down and an enemy soldier takes your father and mother away and kills them. And then you're dragged outside and you're thinking, I'm gonna get killed too. But instead of being killed, you get chained to other teenage young men. And you are shackled by your wrist and your ankles you watch as your house is destroyed and then the church you grew up in, the temple, the place where your father and mother had told you this is where the glory of God resides. This is how we know God is at home amongst our people. You watch as the soldiers burn down your temple and take the precious possessions that once resided in it. You then begin what is a 900 mile death march from your home in Jerusalem to what is now modern day Baghdad. 900 miles, a trip that on foot would take you up to six months. And when you arrive in this new enemy nation, this enemy territory, you approach the city and you realize you are far from home. There you see that the city you're approaching, obviously we're watching the Babylonians are the trashers. But in history, 600 BC, the Babylonians were the epitome of industry. 
you approach a city with great walls. It's a rich, glittering city. The walls of Babylon, history tells us, were, were wide enough so that seven chariots could run across the walls of the city. It wasn't just room for one guy. It was a massive, massive city. The hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the world. And there you walk to the city, you're shackled and you're chained and you expect to be thrown into prison. But instead of being thrown into prison, you are ushered into the king's palace. You're confused. As you left your own home city, you saw corpses on the road. And it says in Psalm 77 that the nation would hang their harps and they wept as they remembered what this enemy nation had done. But there you walk into the palace and you're expected to be met with hostility, but instead of hostility, you're welcomed in. And there's a, a, a butler of sorts that comes up to you and says, welcome, welcome, welcome. And you begin to be even more confused. You look to your left and you look to your right and your teenage friends amongst you are wondering what's going on. But then the same people that had destroyed your nation, destroyed your family, destroyed your church, and burned everything behind you are going to tell you seductively and with great charm, young man, forget your God. Forget your family. Son, this is your new home. Welcome. No, we, we, we're from Jerusalem. We serve Yahweh. Son, where's Yahweh now? We killed him. Oh, some God. Powerful God, huh? We destroyed him. Oh, he lives in the temple? How's his temple doing? It's destroyed. Conform to the culture. Come here. Be one of us. Welcome home. This is your new home. Here's your new name. What's your name? Jake. No longer shall you be called Jake. You shall be called Belteshazzar. What? We'll give you a new home. We're going to give you a new family. Become one of us. And if you conform, if you conform, listen here, you will be rich. You will be prosperous. Do you know the king specifically selected you? You know the only reason that you're not dead like your family? is because the king thought you were intelligent, good-looking, and have a lot of potential. Did your family ever tell you that? Did they ever say that? No, but our king, he notices and he sees something in you. Build a new life here, and you will succeed. This is the story of Daniel. This is the story of Daniel and his three friends, three likely 14, 15-year-olds that are taken captive far from their home, and here they come to a fork in the road. They are forced to ask the question, as you must ask the question, who am I going to live for and who am I going to serve these teenagers are going to be presented with enormous challenges, immense pressure, and unquestionable trials as they seek to honor God in a foreign land. 
And the book of Daniel is here for us this morning and this week to prove something that is important if you're a Christian teenager this morning. It is possible to honor God in a seemingly impossible situation and in a context and culture that is hostile towards him. Mikey last night was using this word resilience. And resilience means that you are unaffected by surrounding pressure. It means that no matter what's happening around you, you're not moving with the tide. You are anchored and you are firm. It's possible, Daniel's gonna show us, to live for God in an ungodly world. And you know what else it's gonna show you? It's gonna show you this week that it's possible for teenage young men and women to wield great influence for the kingdom of God. The Babylonian king is waiting for them. He knows that they are smart and intelligent and he is going to offer them all that Babylon has to give. I want you to think for a moment. If you're presented with the opportunity to, to just forget all about the way you've grown up and, and just by way of precursor here, I acknowledge that some of you have grown up in the church and you think you know this story really well. And I also want to acknowledge that there are some of you who have no idea what you showed up to. And so whether you're a Christian or a skeptic or an atheist, I want to tell you that the book that we hold in our hand called the Bible is going to give you everything you need to know about navigating life in this world. And if you don't know God and you don't care to know God, I, I hope this week your heart is softened towards just hearing the truth. And if you know the truth and you love God and you've asked the question, how can I live for God in my school? How can I live for God in a world that seems so opposed to the truths of the Bible? Here, Daniel will help us. But Daniel is one of those books that we know about, but only in part. It's like a movie where we remember a scene or two, but... We forget really the thrust of the movie, but today I wanna give you the teaser trailer and we'll be a little briefer this morning, but I wanna give you the teaser trailer for where we're going throughout the rest of the week. Now, great movies, now when I study, I guess I'll start here. When I study or when I do homework, I've always listened to film scores. You know, like the main themes from movie, like Finding Nemo, I know I'm weird, but I mean, Thomas Newman, come on. Now, listen. Great movies have great theme scores or film scores. So I'm gonna throw on a song and you guys tell me what movie it's from. Easton, hit me. Not literally, please. What is this? I mean, it's a, I mean, I mean, who saw the third Pirates of the Caribbean? What were they thinking? Okay, now, okay, hit me with another song. Okay, now riddle me this. Star Wars, overrated? Oh, whoa, okay, okay. He who's without sin cast the first stone. Okay, okay, Easton, thanks, man, that's good. Now, in cinematography, they call this main theme. Remember, I turned it on and you went, Star Wars, Pirates of the Caribbean, because that's a reoccurring theme that happens throughout the movies and throughout the scenes. So there's different parts of different tracks, but reoccurring throughout the movie, there's this 
obvious Hans Zimmer-esque theme, this John Williams theme where you go, this is that movie. And in the book of Daniel, there's a theme. It's a score, if you will, that undergirds and sets the foundation for everything we're going to read. It's not music, but it's a great doctrinal truth. And if you have your Bibles, we're gonna look at the first two verses of Daniel this morning, that's it. Turn to Daniel. If you're new to navigating the Bible, the table of contents are your good friend. But you're gonna go Isaiah, Jeremiah, You're going to find Ezekiel, and then right after Ezekiel, you're going to find the book of Daniel. And we're going to look at the great theme. And here's why. Daniel was a teenager some 2,600 years ago. But if Daniel was going to show up at Hume Lake 2023 and we were going, Daniel this, Daniel that, Daniel this, Daniel that, he would storm the stage and say, what are you talking about? The book of Daniel is not about Daniel. Don't, 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 don't talk about me because you obviously missed the first two verses if you think that this is a story merely about some teenage young men. If you miss this, you miss the theme of Daniel. Because if you're going to stand firm like Daniel and his companions, as we'll observe this evening, you're going to have to grasp the same principles and truths that they anchored their life in. Everyone look at me for a second. If you wanna live for God, In an ungodly world, you need to understand Daniel 1, verse 1 and 2. So let me read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What's what's the big deal here? Well, if you notice, verse one is the world's report. It's the same exact reality, but from two different perspectives. Verse one is from the perspective of human history. And verse two is from the perspectory of the God that is ordaining and orchestrating everything according to his perfect plan and counsel. And Daniel's saying, yes, if you're gonna look at the, the annals of history, it's going to read, and this year this happened. But Daniel as a 15-year-old is reflecting and he's writing this book and he's saying, no, 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 this is all happening because of verse two. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The first verse is historical. The second verse is theological. And the first two verses undergird undergird the entirety of this book. And it's the reality of the sovereignty of God. That's a big word, but you need to understand what it means that God is sovereign. When Christians say God is sovereign, it means this. God is the boss. He rules 
and he reigns. He is never surprised. He is never reacting. He's never been caught off guard. He's never had to wonder. He's never straining his divine muscles against a formidable foe. He is the king, and he is sitting on the throne. And as Daniel, a young man, is being brought into exile, far from home, far from his family, and far from the house of his God, he's remembering that God is a God who is in complete control of his life. And do you know what? Is in complete control of your life. Daniel is acknowledging that God is allowing this to happen, that God hasn't been overpowered. He didn't turn a blind eye. In fact, God, for generation after generation, had told his people that if they failed to keep his covenant with him and if they failed to obey him, in Leviticus and Jeremiah, it says this over and over again, that God was going to raise up an enemy nation so that he would overpower them so that the people might not take God for granted. And Isaiah says that he's going to raise up the king of Babylon because the people of God, you know what happened to the land of Judah? They became so familiar with the truth. They knew God so well that they completely ignored him with their life. And God is jealous for his glory and he's jealous for the affection of his own people. And so he pleads with them generation after generation and God is patient, he's patient, he's patient. But he raises up an enemy nation because he's sovereign. Daniel was conscious that in the middle of this Babylonian captivity, that God was grieving his personal history, Daniel's history, into a greater narrative that God was weaving. The book of Daniel begins on this note. God is sovereign. Today, many people will gladly say that God is in heaven, but many people wanna keep God there, that he's in heaven, that he is up there merely observing. Many will claim that God is supreme, but many deny that God is sovereign. The man that's on your $100 bill, I'm assuming you don't have a lot of them. You're poor, poor teenagers. Now, the man that's on your $100 bill is Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is a deist. And a deist believes that God, he made the world, he created it, and then he wound it up like a clock and then he walked away. And now he's in the theater of heaven and he's spectating what happens on earth. And sometimes he engages. It's kind of like a show that he's seen a million times. So he kind of tunes in for different parts and then he kind of you know, bows out at other parts. And he's just there. He's in a recliner, he's retired, and he's eating popcorn, lightly salted with a lemon, little lemon pepper, and he's kind of like, eh, you know, what's going on? He'll tune in, and he kind of knows you exist. He knows maybe something about you, but he's generally disengaged. Maybe you can talk to him, but he probably won't hear you, and if he did, he probably wouldn't respond to what you said. That's what a deist believes. So if you were ever to ask the question, and remember after even the events of 9-11, I was sitting in my classroom in third grade in Chicago when the World Trade Centers were attacked. I remember every single one of us had to get under our desk because they said Chicago was the next place that was gonna be attacked. I remember watching the news as a third grader and that remember the headline, where is God? Where is God? Kingdoms are tottering. Civilization is failing. Fuel prices are soaring. My washing machine is broken. Where is God? Who is in control? We talk a lot about, as Christians, this idea of trusting God, but 
Karl Marx used to say that this element of religion, that there's a God up there who cares and is in control, is the opiate of the masses. It's what dumb people tell themselves to get them through the difficulties of life. Is that true? That we just kind of cling to some sort of like false idea? Many people today view God as a God who, although he may have good intentions, is unable to carry out his intentions He is trying his best, but his best attempts fall short. He is trying to dunk the ball, but all he can do is barely touch the rim. He's just almost there. He's straining, but he's trying, but he's unable. But what does the Bible say? If you miss this, you miss the book of Daniel. What does the Bible say about where God is at, even in the midst of great tragedy and in the midst of exile? Daniel says in verse 2, in Psalm 103, verse 19, says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Let me ask you a question. Who elected God? No one. Where is God seated? He's not at a round table discussing the events of this world with his friends. He's not in a recliner laying back He's not in a stadium observing. He's seated on a throne. He's ruling and he's reigning. Isaiah 46 verse nine says this. I am God and there is no other. First of all, God is passionate about this reality. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In the following verse in Isaiah 46 10, God is going to define what exactly makes him so different than every other supposed God and every other supposed man or king. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there are none like me. Okay, what God? What makes you so different? What makes you so other? What makes you so holy? Mikey mentioned Isaiah 6 last night when they say holy, holy, holy. Holiness means otherness. What makes God so holy? Well, when God proclaims his holiness, his otherness, he proclaims his sovereignty. He says in Isaiah 46, 10, the next verse, I declare the end from the beginning, things not which have been done. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. When God wants you to know that he is different than every other God, he proclaims that he is orchestrating and ordaining all things and he never takes the time out from ruling on the throne. In the wake of Queen Elizabeth's death, USA Today wrote an article last year asking the question, how much power will King Charles III actually have? You know, Queen Elizabeth, you watch the royal family, the gossip stuff, you know, yada, yada. The article says this. Although billions watch and adore the pomp and circumstance that surrounds the royal family, the reality is the kingly office is little more than ceremonial and representative. There is no real power being exercised. It continues, King Charles III, much like his mom before him, does not rule. He reigns, but he does not rule and reign. The key difference, he cannot issue decrees or anything else that remotely resembles an edict. Rather, King Charles III is a figurehead whose behavior reflects suitable decorum and grace. Let me tell you something about the king of the universe. He's not a figurehead that poses for magazines. He doesn't delegate the ruling of the universe to other people. 
Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. Psalm 96, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Psalm 99, Psalm 100, the Lord reigns. Do you think it's important for you to know? And do you think God cares that you know he reigns and that he's seated on a throne? Daniel draws our attention to a certain reality. It's in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. In ancient times, kings operated outside of any legislative body. They were the absolute ruler of the land. Their will, their wish was the law. They could not be thwarted. And yet as easily as a farmer channels the irrigation canals of his fields is as easy as God moves the hearts of kings and kingdoms to establish his grand purpose. It says in Isaiah 40 verse 15, God says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, God, I mean, listen to this. God lifts up the nations like fine dust. Daniel is going to be pressured to conform. He's come to a fork in the road. Who am I going to serve? But let me tell you this. God is only worth serving if he is a sovereign king. Because if God is not sovereign, he is not God. Confidence in this area of God's sovereignty is crucial because you know what? If there is anything in your life that is outside of the power and sovereignty of God, you cannot trust him. Does this mean that God is making bad things happen? No, it simply means this. God is allowing things to happen. And this might cause some pain and confusion for you. But if God is not sovereign, even in our suffering like Daniel, there is no pain, there is no comfort in our suffering. But if Daniel testifies that the one, the one who loves me is the one behind it all, he's not a distant God issuing decrees from just the throne. He is a God who knows us and who loves us. And you watch this in the film. Then even I can trust him in an environment of hostility. If God is not sovereign, he may love you. He may be good. But you cannot entrust yourself to him unless he rules and reigns. Here the story of Daniel begins with a sovereign, sovereign God. It sounds so fundamental. We talk a lot about trusting God. We talk a lot about how God is in control. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is in control of this world and that he's in control of your life? As Daniel walks into this new city, he will be tempted to, and seduced and pressured to conform. And what Daniel encountered 2,600 years ago is not very different than what you encounter today. The world wants to press you into its mold. It says conform. Forget your God. Forget your God. Forget your God. Or maybe just put your God in your bio on Instagram and then live for this world throughout the week. Forget your God. Forget him. This world is better. The world says live for money, live for reputation, live for notoriety, live for sex, live for recognition, live for cars. But it all boils down to one thing and it comes to a fork in the road. You live for God or you live for this world. 
And if you live for this world, you waste your life. And if you live for God, no matter the difficulty that comes your way, you have the hope of heaven in store for you. This book will take us from Daniel's teenage years to his 90s. And it's written for one main reason in scripture. It's in Romans 15, 4. Whatever has been written has been written for our encouragement so that through the testimony of the scripture, we may have hope. Maybe you're discouraged about the world. Maybe you see what's happening and you go, how can I live for God in this type of an environment? Well, it says in Romans that the story of Daniel is written for your encouragement so that you could know that God is just as powerful today as he was in Daniel's time. He's just as sovereign today as he was in Daniel's time. And he's just as able to help you and enable you to live for him in a hostile world as he was 2,600 years ago. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. And Lord, uh, really, we just are preparing our own hearts for the story of Daniel. But the question we must ask today is, who am I going to serve and who am I going to live for? Lord, we don't live in a literal Babylon, but Lord, we are living in a culture that increasingly is hostile. I think it needs to be qualified towards biblical Christianity. Because Christianity in general, as long as we let people believe what they want to believe and stay in our lane, that's fine. But if we proclaim the truth and live by the truth and adhere to what your word says, the world cannot handle that. Lord, we want to be gracious and loving in the way that we live by the truth. But Jesus says in John 15, the world is going to hate you because it first hated me. Lord, Jesus was the greatest and the best of men, and yet he was crucified by the ones he came to save because they couldn't handle what he said, couldn't handle that he was the only way to God and that your word gives us everything we need to know about this life. God, I just acknowledge that there are many in here that do not know you as the Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that this week would be, yes, fun, but Lord, that they would come face to face with their sin and with the question, who am I going to live for? Who am I going to serve? God, your word shows us that you have used 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds to advance your kingdom for your glory and for your honor. So God, I pray that even now you would be putting it on the hearts of young men and young women that would say, yes, God, would you use me? Would I live for you? And would I stand firm while everyone else around me melts before the pressure of a hostile culture? We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Love you guys.